Blog Talk Radio. This is Creativity in Play. I'm Steve Dahlberg. And I'm Mary Alice Long. Our guest today on Creativity in Play is Dan Pink, who will be joining us shortly. Before we get started, we wanted to take a few moments to share some information about the Creativity World Forum, which is coming up in about a week's time. And it will be in Oklahoma City, uh, November 15th through the 17th. And both Mary Alice and I will be part of a pre-conference workshop on November 15th from 2 to 5 p.m. on shaping the future of creativity today. So we invite you to join us for that if you can. Our guest today on Creativity in Play is Dan Pink, author of several books, including A Whole New Mind and Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. He served as chief speechwriter to Vice President Al Gore from 1995 to 1997, and he will join Sir Ken Robinson and the New York Times' David Pogue in the opening session of the Creativity World Forum in Oklahoma City on November 16th. Dan Pink, thank you for being with us. It's my pleasure to be with you guys. Thank you, Dan. Well, your latest book, as I just mentioned, is called Drive, and it's about the important role that intrinsic motivation plays in creativity. And before we talk about that topic a little more broadly and about what the book is about, I'm wondering what drives you personally and what gives you the most intrinsic motivation in the work that you're doing these days. Um, I guess what what, what drives me is uh, I, I like to find out about stuff. Um, and so if I can, you know, satisfy my own curiosity, and so that's one thing, sort of, if I can follow my own curiosity. And the other thing is, one of the great things about writing books is that it does have sort of the aspect of a puzzle, because you've got to figure stuff out, you've got to put it all together, you've got to make it all work, and so I like that challenge. And so if I can sort of follow my curiosity, do the challenging stuff of, of, uh, of putting a book together, um, and hoping that it might affect one or two people's lives, um, and I can do all that, and my kids still have winter coats, um, I'm happy. And you indeed have a, have affected many people's lives through the work that you do, as, as we know, and um, part of that has been through the books that you've written, and, and the, you do a lot, a lot of speaking all over the world. And uh, I think these days, I, when I, I heard you last, it was at Chautauqua, and you were talking about the book Drive, I think, at that time, just before it came out. So can you pick Uh up a little bit about what that is about and and why this topic of intrinsic motivation is so important as it relates to tapping into our creativity? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's really essential. You know, what what I did for that um, book is, and an aspect of which I'll be talking about in Oklahoma City when all of us, all three of us are there, uh, is I went back and looked at about 50 years of behavioral science on motivation. Um, we know everybody knows that creativity is, you know, I think we've come around that creativity is important. People need to be innovative. We're not going to have an economy built on routine skills, whether it's turning the same screw the same way on an assembly line or adding up columns of figures. We need people to be creative. So the question is, how do you motivate people to do creative work? And I went back and looked, and it turns out, as I mentioned, there's 50 years of behavioral science on this question. Uh, the question of what motivates people. And I went and started looking at it. And what it ended up doing is it ended up overturning certain orthodoxies that I didn't even, myself, didn't even realize were orthodoxies. We come into 
a work setting or even, you know, a school or a parent setting and say, well, we know what motivates people. You reward the behavior you want you pun- punish the behavior you don't want. Uh, if, you know, if you want more of a behavior, you reward it. If you want less of it, you punish it. And it turns out 50 years of behavioral science says it's not that simple. Uh, and, and it's even more complex and, and more murky when it comes to creative work. And I'll give you just the, the key punchline here. If you want people to do simple things, um, again, you know, turning the same screw the same way, adding up columns of figures, stuffing envelopes, then the classic kind of motivator that we use in organizations, what I call if-then motivators, as in if you do this, then you get that, they work really well. But if you want people to do creative work, those if-then motivators, they just don't work very well. Uh, they often backfire. And um, and so if we really want people to do creative work, we have to have a, a very different kind of motivational mechanism. It doesn't mean we don't give people rewards for doing great work. What it does mean is that we have environments that uh, give people enormous amounts of autonomy, help them to get better at stuff, and connect them to a larger purpose. And that's really, if you look at both the, the, the science of motivation and if you just look at Creativity in almost any realm, whether it's the arts or business or or or, or um, technology, uh, those are really the building blocks for enduring motivation for creative work. And Dan, I was really intrigued with your "What is my sentence?" Ah. and I wondered how you came up with that and what came of the. I think you had a little contest or or write in video thing on that for, before Halloween. How did that go? And oh yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll get to that. Yeah, it's it, it wasn't a contest. It was just a you know little project. Um, uh-huh. The uh, so so what it, so that that is a well. Let let me take three steps back here. So one of the things that motivates people, one source of motivation and and one pathway to high performance, is if we know why we're doing things. A lot of times, especially at work. You know, we we're, we obsess or our bosses obsess over how. Here's how you do it. Here's how you do it. Here's how you do it. It's true in school as well. And to my mind, we don't have enough conversations about why. And when people know why they're doing things, they end up doing them at, at a, doing them better. And also, if people are doing things for kind of a big why, that is that that, that they that they feel like they're making a contribution to something in, important, they perform at an even higher level. Um, now, this should make intuitive sense to most of us, but it's actually confirmed in the social science. There's some really, really intriguing studies that that that, that demonstrate this. And so I was thinking, um, okay, so how can we help people find their individual purpose? And it, this is just, you know, coincidence. I, I uh, live and work in Washington, D.C., and as, and as Steve mentioned at the top of the show, um, in an earlier part of my life, I worked as a political speechwriter. And there's a famous story in politics where a... a, a Claire Booth Luce, who was a Republican member of Congress, goes into a very young President Kennedy and says, you don't understand leadership. You don't understand that a great man is a sentence. Um, and she said, you know, anybody who's ever achieved anything uh, uh, doesn't, isn't trying to do 17 things at once, but is trying to do one or two transcendent things. And she said, you don't have a sentence. You have a paragraph. Uh, and, she's, you know, and, and the example she gave was Lincoln, where Lincoln's sentence was he – he preserved the union and freed the slaves, and and, and I thought I've always been struck by that. That this is a good way to define our own purpose. Like, is what can we, you know, maybe we should all as individuals have a sense, um, that defines who we are and what we're about. 
Uh, it might change over time, but it can operate as kind of a North Star for purpose. And it turned out that exercise, which is in the book, um, proved to be pretty popular. Um, I mean, thankfully, uh, a lot of schools were doing it, a lot of classes were doing it, uh, got a, getting a lot of emails. So I said, well, wouldn't it be cool if we just collected a bunch of these sentences? Um, but instead of just reading them, maybe you could have people make little, just kind of say them into a, a video camera. And so what I did is I just opened it up in my newsletter and my blog, and we got a lot of submissions. Um, it wasn't a contest. It wasn't, we're going to find the best um, uh, we're not. We're, mm-hmm. we're going to find the best sentence. It was. Let's see what people have to say. And I got so many of them. I mean, I've, I've, I've actually watched almost all of them now. And what we're going to try to do is make a a short video compiling a bunch of people's sentences. The problem we're going to have is that we're going to have to leave, you know, several hundred, you know, several hundred, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sentences on the cutting room floor. So my big challenge right now is to figure out. How do I, how do I get them all out there? Because people, are, it's just great to see someone, you know, look into a camera in their home office or their living room and say, "Hey, my name is Jane uh, Garcia, and here's my sentence," and then have her read it. You just, it, it really, I find it really quite moving in many of the cases. Some of the sentences are hilarious. Some people did really cool, inventive things. Other people are very poignant. Uh, some people are just a little weird. <laughs> and um, <laughs> uh, but it's a really great. I'm, I'm really excited to. To, to show them to the world. It's just we have to figure out how to get them all out there because we have many more than I expected. That's great. Well, my sentence, I am Mary Alice, and and she lives her life playfully and naturally. There you so, go. So because of that, I also have a question for you about how does plain humor improve what is done in the schools and in organizations and work how can how can we bring more play and humor into well, those settings i think it's a huge, it i think it's a i mean i think it's a huge question and what you what we've seen well there, i mean on on humor and play there's to my mind two slightly different things let me take all the playfulness and humor out of the, your question by overanalyzing it um i think that um, <laughs> That uh, humor and play are slightly different, slightly different things. Uh, humor, there is a, a fair body of evidence that shows that uh, in management, that humor is an incredibly important management tool, um, and that there is this kind of interesting correlation that that effective managers often, not always, have a decent sense of humor. Um, it's a sense of, and because humor can diffuse difficult situations, humor can be a form of bonding, humor can be a form of humility. Um, and it actually is a very cognitively humor is an incredibly sophisticated uh, thing that human beings do, and in, in management it's, it's enormously important. Um, I think that on play, which is just doing things for their own sake, doing things because they're challenging, getting better at stuff, uh, having flow experiences, I think that is central to human motivation, and uh, I think it's essential to creativity. Um, that is, if you again going back to what we were talking about earlier, uh, people are creative in situations where they have freedom and autonomy to explore, to do do all kinds of things. This is why you see innovations like uh, 20% time at Google, where people can spend 20% of their time working on whatever they want. I mean, that's a form of recess from work in a way, uh, and it turns out that that 20% time at Google, for instance. That's where Google News came from. That's where Gmail came from. None of those, neither of those, among many other innovations there, neither of those were official projects. They were all 20% projects. 
Um, if you look at what Twitter did uh, last week, uh, Twitter had what is called a hack week where people could work on whatever they wanted. Okay, So it's sort of like a that week is kind of like a spring break where they could do whatever they wanted. Uh, even the guy, and I'm going to talk about this, I think, in Oklahoma City, the guy who won the Nobel Prize in, in physics for discovering something called graphene, made his discovery, made his Nobel Prize winning discovery, not during his official experiments or his officially sanctioned funded research, but in something that he called Friday night experiments, which, were, which had that kind of playful, let's try stuff, see what happens uh, aspect that, that you're describing. And those two uh, gentlemen were so great to listen to after they were awarded the Nobel Prize, talking about how much they do play and joke constantly, and you know don't at all fit the staid scientist sort of stereotype that you might think of. Right, exactly. Working in his lab. But you, as you described some of these examples, uh, again knowing that you are speaking all over the world on a regular basis. What other intriguing things are you seeing in other countries outside of of the United States that that might give us insight or new thinking about how we might approach creativity in organizations or education or society? Well, I mean, I, I think there are, I think there are a number I think there are a number of things from overseas. I think there there are you know actual practices, um, but then there are also other aspects of organizational life. For instance, I think that in gen, I think that. There are some European, uh, Australian um, uh, en- enterprises that that are pretty good at work at workplace design and coming up with the actual physical physical architecture of work as a way to enhance creativity. I think that is a largely unexplored field. Uh, and if you look at, I mean, it's sort of disturb. I think some American companies are doing a decent job of that. But um, I-, I remember seeing a photograph of a, you know, a garment uh, uh, manufacturing place, a, a garment house in the Lower East Side of New York, New York City in the early, 19, uh, the early 1900s. And if you look at that setting, the physical layout of the workplace, it looks eerily similar to a cubicle, cubicle farm. Um, I mean, people are kind of in, you know, in these little pens, hunched over machines. And that's just not the way that human beings create. So I think there's some good avenues in workplace design. Uh, in terms of actual practices, I think one of the most effective practices out there uh, comes from Australia. It doesn't come from the United States. It comes from a company called Atlassian, which is a software company uh, headquartered in, in Sydney, and they do something really cool. Um, once a quarter on a Thursday afternoon, they say to their software developers, go work on anything you want. Again, it's very much this aspect of play. Go work on anything you want. Do it however you want. Do it with whomever you want. The only thing we ask is that you show what you've created to the rest of the company on Friday afternoon, okay, in this fun, you know, wild, all-hands meeting. They call these things FedEx days because you have to deliver something overnight. Well, lo and behold, it turns out that this one day of intense autonomy um, not a typical, not saying, hey, if you come up with something great, I'll give you some prize, or if you don't come up with something great, I'll punish you in some way. But it's essentially saying, hey, you probably want to do something cool. Let me just get out of your way. Now, it turns out this one day, these FedEx days, have led to all of these innovations, uh, fixes for existing products, ideas for new products, uh, ways to improve processes within the firm uh, that otherwise had never emerged. And I think what's cool there is that this is an idea that's really spreading. Uh, more and more companies have started doing this. Uh, some schools have started doing this. 
Um, and I think that, you know, one of the great things about the age that we live in is that you can have an, you know, you can have an innovation birthed in in Sydney, Australia, and, you know, within a, it can immediately spread and it's now, you know, can be done in a high school in Pound Ridge, New York. Um, so I think that these ideas spread really, can, can spread really, really quickly. And I do think that people are yearning for ways to, you know, unleash creativity, ways to take off some of the constraints, ways to do make real big contributions to the world. And, I think and Dan, Dan do you think that um, with what you're saying about spreading like wildfire, that some of that comes through storytelling? Because I know you place some importance sure. on storytelling. You know, sure. With I, mean, I mean, what, you know, what, what, you know, um, yeah, I think it does. I mean, that's you know, sto- you know, stories are. Uh, you know, a very powerful way to spread ideas. Um, and I do think that if somebody tells the story of, you know, I, I mean, let's go back to those guys who won the Nobel uh, Prize in Physics. I mean, when they're out there telling their story of how they did it, believe me, there are going to be plenty of other scientists and technologists out there saying, hmm, maybe we should do that. Uh, and I do think that, obviously, that's you know, a big way that, story, that uh, these ideas spread. Mm-hmm. But now I think what's cool is that you know if you have a blog, or you you, you can still you can tell your story to the entire world. Exactly, it sure can. I mean, think about that. I mean, you know, in the, in the in the in the very very early days, you know, of human evolution, you know, you could tell the story only to the people sitting around the campfire. All right, then we had you know printed books, and you you could tell, and if you had access to the capital, you could then memorialize your story in a text and then, you know, if you had means to the distribution, you could get it out there and, you know, that was a fairly effective way to do it, but there were still a lot of constraints. Now, my gosh, I mean, my, you know, I think about, I mean, I'm talking to you from my home in Washington, D.C., and and I think about my kids and I, you know, 12-year-old daughter or 8-year-old son could, uh, uh, and my 14-year-old daughter has already done this. You know, you could start a a blog and people around the world could read it. I mean, it's pretty amazing. Or watch on video on the blog. Oh, sure. In fact, one of my 14-year-old did a uh, uh, for for school. Their school had a film festival. They did a. She and her couple of her friends did a few of her friends did a film for the film festival, and um, they put it online. And lo and behold, people around the world are you know watching their little film and making comments about it. I mean. It's really, it's just, I don't think we move at such a fast clip uh, and we metabolize these things so so quickly that I don't think we, I think we often don't appreciate it. Um, but it's pretty stunning, actually, what's going on out there. You took a risk telling a story in a different way with your Johnny Bunko book, and I'm, I'm wondering if you can talk about why you chose that format and, and what you learned in the process of doing that book versus all the other books and writing you've done? Uh, well, yeah, yeah. So that book for um, the 99.99% of your listeners who don't know what it is, is um, uh, a book. What I, what I did is I did a, a career guide. The subtitle of that book, it's called The Adventures of Johnny Bunko, and the subtitle of the book is The Last Career Guide You'll Ever Need. And what I, instead of writing a traditional career book, what I did is I, I did it w- along with a very talented artist named Rob Tenfus. I did it in the, the the form of called manga, which is Japanese comics, 
And so this is a 160-page graphic novel. It's a book-length comic book um, uh, that tells a story of a guy named Johnny Bunko uh, who is stuck at this you know, dead-end job at a place called the Boggs Corporation. And uh, one night, well, thank, I won't give the whole story here, but one night he has a dark night of the soul, and somehow he, he through some magic chopsticks, he encounters a, a figure named Diana who proceeds to teach him the six essential lessons of any satisfying productive career. And, I mean, I think the, I did it in that format for a couple of reasons. One, as you, we were talking about earlier, it's a story, so the message might stick. Two, um, it's a visual story, so that I think that also enhances the ability of the story to stick. The other thing is, more, it really sort of goes to this world that we're talking about awash in information and, and sources. Um, there's a huge amount of career information out there. And so anybody who wants to know, say, what words to, keywords to put in their resume or what questions to look for in an interview will go online to get that. And they're not going to go to a book. And so I, I think a book has to do what um, other media don't, often don't do as well, which is tell a compelling story and often in a visual way. And so, um, so I decided to do it in that format um, because I thought it was a really I thought it was an effective way to spread that idea, and, and it turned out to be it's interesting what happened. I mean, it turned out to be uh, more popular in say middle schools and high schools than I would ever have expected, um, and it turned out to be pretty popular overseas because uh, people who for whom English wasn't their first language could read it in English relatively easily, and it also ended up being a uh, pretty easy book to translate. The, the twenty-somethings who I, who were who were the target for the book didn't flock to it, but we ended up getting you know other audiences that surprised us. Has it made you think about the way you write your other prose books differently because of that experience of doing that particular book? Uh, a little bit. I mean, I, I think it, it, one of the things that it did, it, well, I mean, it was interesting just inherently because it exercised new muscles for me, muscles that I didn't have. Uh, I do think that there is, you know, a power in um, uh you know, brisk narratives and uh, what it, what is, I guess the main takeaway from that book was, wow, you know, people people really will actually read a book if they can get through it quickly, not in a dumbed down way, but if it's sort of, you know, maximally brisk. And it made me think about how can I bring that extra level of briskness to prose, which is often not an easy thing. And Dan, I was uh, as I was looking through some of your uh, information online, I noticed uh, one piece where you were talking about young adults and in uh, the university setting, and how you were dismayed at the idea that they were looking towards the test or what questions would be on the test, and could they answer them from whatever you were saying, and were they giving the right information, rather than looking at what's the bigger picture and what's the greater purpose. Right. I wonder what you have to say about um, how to um, communicate that that greater need to look towards the future and um, and the now. What's going on now that you know where you're yeah. really living your life through greater purpose? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's tough, and I think it's something that people discover and find out as their lives as as their lives go on. Um, you know, actually, I write about that a little bit in, in Johnny Bunko and about the importance of making decisions for 
fundamental reasons more than instrumental reasons. That is, I find a lot of people, particularly young people, are almost obsessed over making decisions for purely instrumental reasons. That is, an instrumental reason is you make a decision because you think it's going to lead to something else. So you major in X because you think it'll get you a job. You uh, you you work at a particular place not because you're interested in it, but because you think it's a good stepping stone. And what I have found, particularly in the world of careers, I think even more broadly in the world of life, is that uh, instrumental reasons uh, often don't work very well. Uh, it's too you know things are too crazy and chaotic and complicated out there. You just you actually don't know what life is going to bring for you or both good and bad, opportunities and problems, you know, six months from now, one year from now, two years from now. And so I think that, you know, it's good to have, I think, the broad contours of um, uh, goals. But I think that the specificity, I'm going to go from A to B to C to D, is, is often a joke. And when I look around, the people whom I've encountered who are really doing extraordinary things often made decisions for fundamental reasons. Um you know, they majored in a subject just because they were interested in it. They took a job just because they thought it was a cool place to work, even though they didn't know where it was going to lead. And um, and, and I'm just convinced that fundamental reasons, this very pragmatic argument, I think fundamental reasons work better than instrumental reasons. And so what worries me is is that people who are making those instrumental decisions not only aren't enjoying their life and doing great work, but it's not even working in the way that they want it to work. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I think there's such a profound connection too to what you're just saying about fundamental reasons and making. And the first topic you talked about around intrinsic motivation—that you know, the making decisions about things that you like or that are important to you or that are meaningful to you—certainly, I think, drive the intrinsic motivation and, and vice versa. And, and you know, seeing people who haven't made those decisions earlier in their their academic lives, their career lives, finding themselves in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, suddenly asking those questions, perhaps for the first time in their lives or the first time in a lo- in a long time. So really, you know, recognizing the opportunity, I guess, to come back into finding those fundamental reasons and that intrinsic motivation, if it hasn't been there for a good deal of your your professional working life, which for a lot of people it doesn't seem to be. It's true, and it's it's harder to do when you're 40 or 50 or 60, uh, when it's not a habit. And um, you know, I think it's a really profound point. And you know, and I think when people get to the end of their lives, you know, and they look back on the decisions they've made, I don't think they say, "Wow, I'm," you know, "Boy, I really regret having followed my passion. I really regret having made decisions because I did something that I thought was the right thing to do, or because I was really into it." You know, I should have just, you know. Um, been more risk averse. I should have just, you know, instrumentally followed things, even if I was had to lead a joyous, joyless life. I mean, they don't. People don't do that. When they get to the end of their lives, they regret making. Uh, in, uh, they often regret making instrumental decisions. They very rarely regret making fundamental decisions. Mm-hmm. Well, in the remaining minute or so that we have. Because of the work that you've done um, politically in the past um, with your speech writing with, with Vice President Gore and probably ongoing conversations with such people, uh, what what advice do you have looking from the policy and political standpoint of the role that creativity can play and, and how to support that in a formal way through the policy part of this, this question? Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, you know, I think what I think what it means is... Um, 
uh, I think a lot of it has to go with schools, and so um, I think that that's, that that we have way too much, way too many routines, right answers, and standardizations in schools and education policy, and that's not the foundation of a, uh, a creative economy. Um, if you look at what China, China has a very rigid school system, very rigid education system. China is, for instance, making a huge effort right now in, in arts education. Uh, at particular time, that many school districts in this country are getting rid of the arts. Um, and so I think, you know, on, on a policy, it has to do with education. Uh, and then other things, I think it has to do with broader public support for the, for, for the arts, but also uh, broader public support for uh, research and development and, and investments in technology. Uh, and, you know, reorienting our budget maybe a little bit away from, uh, you, you know, entirely Social Security, Medicare, and Defense, which is basically what all of our federal budget goes to, uh, to, to things that might, to science and technology and the arts that can provide some innovation. Well, Sam, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having thank me. It's been you. a pleasure. Dan Pink is the author of the book Drive. You will be at the Creativity World Forum in Oklahoma City on November 16th, and you can listen to this show again and find more information about our guests and coming shows at creativityandplay.com. Listen at noon Eastern on November 10th when our guest will be leading creativity researcher Robert Sternberg. Creativity and Play is a production of the International Center for Creativity and Imagination in partnership with the National Creativity Network. I'm Steve Dahlberg. And I'm Mary Alice Long. Thank you, Dan, for joining us today.